Hey, and welcome to the CCWC podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to be part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, this week, we, uh, we continue forward in this thing called uh, giving up, this series directed towards what it means to give up things in our life, whether it be strongholds, whether it be sins, you know, in the context of Lent, you give up something so that you might fast that, and, and in so doing, it's not just to deprive yourself, it's not just to get rid of things or to, to declutter, so to speak, but we give up so that we might be filled more wholly, more fully uh, with Jesus. And so as we take these steps forward into this season, this, this week of, of passion, this season of Easter, this moment of uh, celebrating on Resurrection Sunday, we do so taking tangible steps with the desire to uh, empty ourselves of the things of this world so that we might know God in a greater way, in a more powerful way, in a more direct way, in a more holistic way. And so last week, as we moved forward in this, we talked specifically about giving up our, uh, our expectations. And then we talked about, or two weeks ago, and then last week, we talked about giving up superiority. This week, we talk about giving up enemies. And perhaps as, we hear the, as you hear the word enemy, you think, well, I don't have any enemies in my life. There's nobody in my life that certainly has it out for me, and I don't have it out for anyone else. And so as we look at this context of enemies, I want to broaden the term a little bit so we can have a greater understanding of what God is talking about, what particularly Jesus is talking about as he talks about embracing the enemies, so to speak, in our life. Now, you hear about enemies, you might think of Coke and Pepsi, you might think of uh, the Red Sox or the Yankees, you might think of Burger King or McDonald's, which uh, for those both, are that's the enemy of the person who wants to eat healthy. But I, I, I like to watch um, westerns. My sons and I watch westerns together, and while they are somewhat slow moving and the action is minimal, one of the things that I like about them is the storyline. And specifically the fact that you'll see two opposites, right? You'll see the, the one who is basically the antagonist, and then you have the hero on the other end. And usually what happens is they do normally end with a happy ending. Sometimes there's one where my sons are like, is there a second addition to this? Because that didn't fulfill the need of the happy ending that I normally would want. But usually what happens is you have this hero that is usually dressed in white, right, on the white horse, and he comes in and he saves the day just in time to fix everything. And we see these enemies kind of have this moment of, okay, either one of them ends up dying, which is the worst part, or they go to jail or whatever. They are punished. And we, we have this, yay, the enemy got what's coming to them moment. Anybody there? All right, a few of you, thank you for humoring me. And the interesting thing about that is, while we do have this sense of good, justice was served, everything happened the way it was supposed to, Christ has a different look or gives us a different look on how we are to embrace or engage our enemies or the people that we don't get along with or the person that we don't see eye to eye with or maybe that person that we are living in disunity with. Whoever it is, whatever it is, whether it be a coworker or maybe a family member, maybe it's somebody that we go to school with or it's a roommate, somebody that really we just aren't clicking with. And Satan would say, or the old way, or this Western's way would say, okay, that person's going to get what's coming to them. If I'm able to help out with that, certainly I will to make sure that they get what they're supposed to get. And what Jesus says is quite the opposite. 
What is an enemy? The dictionary defines an enemy as a person who feels hatred for, fosters harmful design or designs against, or engages antagonistic activities against another. It's an adversary or an opponent, someone who is on the other side, so to speak, and you can define other however you want. But Jesus, in his life, he wasn't um, different. He wasn't uh, separate from us. Instead, he had enemies. In fact, he had many enemies in his life. He got primarily them from being obedient to God. And they saw the way that he lived. They saw, they saw the way that he taught. They saw that people followed him. They saw that he had power. And because he followed God the Father and the plan that he had for him, it brought forth this message and this leadership that was misunderstood by many. And also it was often convicting by many. And so they saw him as the adversary, the opponent, the enemy. In Matthew chapter 5, we see part of uh, Jesus' teaching. We read uh, part of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to just take a small portion of this and we're going to look at it in a more in-depth way today. But we we recognize that certainly the people that are going to be listening are coming with all different perspectives. And as we come into this place, we're coming with different perspectives as we embrace the Word, as we embrace the concepts that we read today. Probably there's some in here today that are saying, yeah, there there are people that are my enemy and certainly they're going to get what's coming to them. There's some on the other side, well, we should just love everyone and Jesus is somewhere in the middle in this understanding that enemies, like anything else, the people that we have disunity with, the people that we are frustrated with, the people that are maybe have disunity with us or are frustrated with us, that can be another tool, just like anything else in this world, to help us grow in our faith. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, in his, in his proper design, in his proper timing, once again uses something that was meant for bad to bring forth an opportunity for growth, for us to experience him in a deeper, more intimate way, just the opposite of what the devil intended. And so I'm going to read today from Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. And like I said, we're going to kind of read through this, um, this verse and look at it in a little bit more in-depth manner. Chapter 5, verse 43 reads like this, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, here's the command, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here we see this this very difficult, I mean, it's a simply put, but very difficult thing to live out, kind of placed right here in the middle of Jesus' teaching, right in the middle of, of this eye for an eye, and then getting right into what we're supposed to do and how we're to embrace those who are in, the, in need. And we see this foreign concept where Jesus says to those who are sitting around or standing or those that are listening, that you are supposed to love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Wait a minute, I, I, I see the first side. Of course, it's easy to love my neighbor. It's easy to love the people that I know. It's easy to love the people that, I, that, I, that love me. But on the other end, Jesus, wait, maybe, you, maybe there's a misprint. Maybe you, you misspoke. If you want to repeat that for just a moment, did you just say I'm supposed to also love my enemy? 
Because what I knew before, what I've been told by my ancestors, what I've been told by everybody that I know is I'm supposed to hate my enemy. And so here's the question, and here's the big, big, big question that came to mind then and perhaps is coming to your mind now. How? How can I love my enemy? How can I love those who are against me? How can I love those who don't want what's best for me? Those that, that are trying to tear me down. Those that are trying to, as the passage says, persecute me. Perhaps you live in a setting that, that is, is pretty hostile towards uh, the, 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 the gospel. And you think, how am I supposed to pray for, to love those who literally are tearing me down for being a follower of Jesus? I can tell you it's right here in the passage. Certainly as we walk through this, there are specific steps that Jesus put. He's very intentional about his words. And the first one starts in verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You have heard that it was said. Now it's very intentional that Jesus puts it this way. Because typically when Jesus is teaching on Old Testament or or sharing Old Testament teaching, and then he is embracing this time to fulfill the gospel, usually what he will say is, this is what is written, or here is what has been written. This This specific passage, he doesn't say, here's what's written. He says, you have heard, meaning this is not in scripture. This is something that you may have heard before or something that has been twisted from a previous passage or something that you may have heard about from from an ancestor or even your parents. This is something that you're supposed to do, but this is not in Scripture. There are specific things that might say something uh, similar, but the, uh, the, the, uh, the idea is not for the heart for us to hate anyone. And oftentimes our previous understanding in life or our assumptions or worldly knowledge dictates the actions that we have. And so those that were there would have been living a life that hated their enemy based upon something that they had known. But Jesus is stating that there is another way. There's a better way. And you and I both know that it's hard to unlearn something, particularly something that we may have learned or or done for a long time, something that we, a habit that we've created for many, many years. And so unlearning something, so to speak, is difficult. But but we have this learned knowledge from God in a way of making the the impossible possible, the the dark light, the the way that God brings hope hope in in the place of hopelessness. The reality is we have to be obedient, we have to be willing, we have to be open to God. And his call for our lives when it comes to this prospect of of loving our enemy starts here, that we need to first embrace his truth by recognizing the error of worldly thinking. I mean, this first point specifically points towards the reality that we have to have this check in our minds. Okay, does everything that I believe, particularly what I believe about my enemies, so to speak, does everything that I believe reflect God's gospel? Is it in line with God's truth and what God has given to me? Or simply is it something that I've heard somewhere else, something that's been twisted from scripture, something that I I maybe want to hold on to because it's appropriate or it makes me feel good? Or is it what God actually says? And so first things first, you have... You, you have, what you have heard or what has been said, obviously that would have been appropriate for the original audience, but also for us here in our previous understanding, we see what Christ is saying. Also for us in our 2023 understanding of the interpretation of this passage and our interpretation of other passages helps us to recognize that sometimes if something is taken out of context, sometimes something has been granted to us, it may not be the truth that God is trying to get across to us. In fact, you've probably heard the passage before in Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21 and 22 reads like this. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. 
In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. And how some people might read this, and maybe you have before, is, okay, well, if somebody is wronging me, I'm going to give them nice things, and therefore they're going to feel the pain of the burning hot coals on their head. Kill them with kindness, right? Anybody been there before? Yeah, that person was so mean, but I am going to be so nice back to them so that they get punished for how they're, they're going to feel so guilty for the way they treated me after I'm so nice to them. When in essence, what we see here is a, a miscalculation, a misunderstanding, a, a, a wrongful interpretation of the passage because we kind of have missed what the historical meaning was here. You see, in that time, fire was so important. It literally represented everything. And what the, what the, the, the uh, not the psalmist, this is from Proverbs, uh, if I get myself straight here, what the, what, the, what the author was attempting to try to state here was that sometimes a person's fire might go out. And maybe you've seen that, spiritually speaking, in somebody's life. They go through a dark time. They go through a time of, of, of not calling upon God. They, they go through a time of difficulty. Maybe they go through a time where they begin to, to receive or they begin to, to establish enemies in their life. And, and what, they're, what they're needing at that point is for someone to reach out through the power of the Holy Spirit to bring forth an opportunity for them to experience fire again to give them live coals, so to speak. And so in that day, if someone would, would have had their fire go out, maybe they went on a trip, they came back and they had no fire, or maybe there was a storm, or maybe they had some kind of destruction to their home, what would happen in an appropriate way is a neighbor would have said, hey, because your fire went out, I'm going to give you some coals so that you might have fire once again. And so giving that person coals the way that they would have transported them would have been over their head in a pan. And they'd have taken the coals from one place to the next. In fact, sometimes on a journey, that's what would happen. On a long journey, people would go in a caravan and they would pause somewhere. And they, for the night, they would stay there and they would have their fire. And then when they were done, they wouldn't put their fire out. You know, like you're supposed to do, just so you know, if you, if you go camping. Instead, what they would do is they would take that fire and they would take it with them everywhere they went, which is also symbolic of what we're to do with Christ. We're to take him everywhere when we go. And so what would happen here is it was, you would see somebody who may be considered an enemy. Instead of saying, good luck, I hope you figure it out, you give them fire. You give them life. You express to them what real life really is. You give them compassion, not revenge. And this should characterize all believers, all of us. This is not killing them with kindness because the intention of killing them with kindness is to make someone else feel bad, right? You're going to feel bad about how you treated me. Instead, the coals weren't meant to hurt them, but to give them life. And God's intention as he inspired this passage for all believers is not to be the agent of justice, but be, to be the agent of love peace, and unity. Furthermore, there is another understanding here that goes along with that because there is this level of justice as well. The, the coals on the head may also refer to a ritual in Egypt where there was uh, a, a punishment. There was a response. It was a place for people to, in repentance to carry whole coals over their head because there was this level of this does hurt a little bit. And so there's this, this, this marrying of the same topic, the same understanding that there was, the, there was an attempt in some way for us as believers, as we give this fire to someone else, for them to also experience a, a rejuvenation through experiencing God's goodness and his justice and his forgiveness. As Paul summarized it in Romans chapter 12, verse 21, it says, Do not be overcome by evil, giving into temptation to retaliation, but overcome evil with good. 
Again, that point is so true because it's the foundation of where we stand. Embrace his truth by recognizing the error of worldly thinking. As the passage continues, Jesus is quoted to saying this, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's just the straight instruction to love enemies. This new truth, this new thing. And love in and of itself is not just a feeling. What Jesus is saying here is there's an action, a required sacrifice, a buy-in. And then additionally, this prayer uh, that's, that's added on to it requires humility and the desire to see his will done rather than of oneself. Meaning that we don't just pray for somebody else and say, well, I'll just hope that it all happens. But we pray in God's name, in God's way, so that that person can experience him the same. By loving and praying for our enemies, we overcome evil with good. Not just for that person, but also within us. Perhaps you've heard the phrase before that when you're bitter towards someone else, it's like drinking poison and waiting for them to die. Right? That's, that's really what happens when we have enemies, particularly on our end, is where we, we have these, these, these feelings, this reaction, this, 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 basically this block, this barricade from being able to experience God in a deeper way because of the fact that we are shunning or we are attempting to try to hurt or trying to try to put someone else down. Because oftentimes prayer impacts the person that is actually offering the prayer and God wants us to, to be impacted by him. Jesus demonstrated this in a, in a very powerful way when he prays for his enemies. This posturing of prayer even brought him to tears. And in Luke chapter 19, we see that Jesus is he's on the mountain. He, is, he has been teaching. He's been doing all these things. And he goes to this place, the Mount of Olives. And while he's there, certainly this is, a pla- his, this is his prayer place. He goes there to pray. And he sends some of his disciples to go into the city to bring back a colt so that he might ride this colt into town uh, for the triumphal entry, which we're going to celebrate on Palm Sunday in just a couple of weeks. While, while they're gone, he stays and he prays. And then before he returns, the disciples come. Before he returns into the city or goes into the city, Jesus leaves the mountain. And going into Jerusalem, he's able to see the city. And as he's coming down the hill, he's being embraced by the reality that he's going into this place with all of these people that are going to celebrate him to start with. But as time goes on, in a very short amount of time, he's going to be rejected and ultimately beaten, sacrificed, and killed, crucified on account of the people there that are literally sinners. Now, if I don't don't define an enemy the right way, let me just say this is in every respect, Jesus could say, these are my enemies. These are are people that are attempting to try to kill me and the message that I bring. The passage reads like this in chapter 19. I'm just going to read a few verses, 37 to 44. It says, when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles that that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He responded, I tell you, he replied, If they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, this is his response. It wasn't, you're going to get what's coming to you. It wasn't, hey, I hope that you get this figured out one day. It wasn't, you know what? You know, justice will be served on you. Instead, this is what his response was. He wept over it. 
Jesus was brought to a place of tears. He was brought to a place of compassion, a place of saying, I see this city. I see all of these people. While they are yet sinners, while they are literally going to be my enemy, I still love them. I brought to compassion over them because of the prayers that he's been having at the same time, because of the love he has for them. He cried out for the city three times, in fact. This is the second time that it's, it's, it's recorded in Luke, and he's not willing that any should perish. He desires for them to grow and to know God themselves. He knows what's going to happen, and he's going to be betrayed. He's going to be put to death, but he still cries out in compassion. And the call is this, the second point actually, and the call is this, engage in love for your enemy through the posture and action of prayer and self-sacrifice. Now, certainly I'm not saying or, or uh, assuming that this is to take place for any of us. God might call us to, to die to self, maybe not in a physical way, but certainly the call is the same. The call is, is the reality for us to have a posture of being open and, a prayer, and an action of prayer so that we might be in whatever way the, the hands and feet, the mouthpiece, the one for this God who has called us. And this isn't easy. I get that because when you pray, you're supposed to pray in the will of God, not in the will of self. And sometimes the will of self might say, well, I hope you get it figured out one day. The will of self, you know what? You've done enough bad things. I don't think I'm the one to help you. And certainly sometimes we're not face to face, but God does call us to prayer. And the thing about prayer is when we pray in God's will, prayer desires the best for others. Biblical prayer desires God's will for others, meaning that his will be that they would receive him, that they would know him, they would experience his hope. Biblical prayer desires for someone else to experience the goodness of God. And maybe you can relate to this. Maybe you recognize this. If we are praying for the goodness of others, it might make it difficult to pray for an enemy. To pray for someone we're not living in unity with. To pray for someone who has wronged us or someone who has done things against us. Verse 45 says, And that you may be children of the Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. This is a description of God's power. Can I just say this? God, even when we don't recognize it, even when we don't acknowledge it, even when we don't know, God is able. God can do and often will do, even when we can't imagine, even when we doubt, even when we don't know, God is able. His power can do it. God's power for us is far greater than we might expect. His power, when he works, is far greater than we might know, even when we offer up our prayers. But what he asks for us is to be obedient, to be open, and to fervently and passionately come before him, not just for our friends and our neighbors, but for those that we might consider enemies as well. Can, can I just say this? Just, just listen to this, this, one, this one moment, this one thought. He has the power to change our hearts towards our enemies. And he has the power to change our enemies' hearts towards us. God has the power to change our hearts, to, to soften our hearts, to open our hearts towards those who we may live in disunity with. And so here's the third point, and I'm, I'm going to skip the illustration and move on. Allow the power of God to transform your heart and actions. 
That's the call. That, that's the call of Christ right here. He says, look, you are thinking wrong. You are thinking in, in a way that is, 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 is worldly. At the same time, he's saying, here is the truth. Here is the call to step forward in prayer. And then finally, what he says is just allow God to move. Allow me to move in you because I want to do real and lasting things in your midst. I want, to, I want you to experience me in, in a way that's far greater than you can ever understand or ever imagine. But you can't do it. When you leave these walls up, when you build up these divides, when you have these places where you sever relationship, not just with others, but with God as well. Because when we hold uh, others at arm's length, when we push others away, we're also pushing away God because God wants, to live, wants us to live in unity with him and with his body, with his bride, with his church. At the same time, let me just say this. When we live in a place where we allow the power of God to transform our hearts and our actions we experience his peace. We experience a peace that only we can have when we allow God to change us, to transform us, to have all of us. When we're living, holding on to something, you know why we don't have peace? Because we're trying to control something. We're trying to be in charge of something that we have no business controlling. When you hold on to, to uh, the, the time that you have, when you hold on to the treasure you have, when you hold on to the relationships, when you hold on to the power, whatever it might be in your life, when you hold on to those things or that thing, the reason that you don't experience peace is because you have no business. You don't have the ability to be able to control it. Only God does. Verse 46 through 48 reads like this. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not, the, not even the, the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. I know this last line can be a difficult one because we read that and say, well, how can I be perfect like Jesus? And I don't think that the desire there is for us to automatically be perfect. Instead, if you look at the original text, what Jesus is saying is live in a, in a process of becoming more like Christ, a process of being holy, a process of desiring to be perfect as God is perfect on earth and then in, uh, eventually in heaven. But the bottom line is this, the pinnacle of Jesus' teaching in this instance, is to help his disciples grow in their relationship with him. You see, God knows, and, and Jesus is teaching here, he knows that the separation of people can bring forth a separation between the creation and the creator, us being the creation, God being the creator. And so what he's saying is put all those things aside, put aside the differences, pray for them. And while there may not be reconciliation ever on this earth, there is opportunity for you to break the chains and to allow the opportunity for God to pour into you and you to be an outpouring of him regardless of where you're at and what you're doing. Ultimately, what Christ is asking for here is not for us to, to turn the other cheek in this instance, although he does call for us to do that in other passages. What he's calling for us to do is just to be open and surrender to him. Surrender to his will, surrender to his way. I said earlier that I like to, to watch westerns with the boys, I, my boys. I also like to watch, we like to watch military movies. 
And there's one that came out uh, actually in the, in the mid-90s. So it's called Sahara, and it's not the new one with uh, Matthew McConaughey, the treasure hunting one. This is actually a military movie, and it's set around, uh, in, in World War II, it's set around this, this instance within the war where Tobruk had, been, uh, had fallen and been taken over, and it actually takes place in June of, of 1942. And there's this U.S. Army sergeant named Joe Gunn, and he's leading this, this, uh, uh, this uh, charge into uh, the Sahara desert to evade the, the troops to, to get away from those that are going to be uh, kind of, actually they're, they're coming in on all sides and as they attempt to try to get away, he's moving forward with his small contingent of soldiers and they're picking up other soldiers, other allied troops along the way and they, they're in the middle of the desert and they realize shortly that the real enemy for them is not the, the, the soldiers that are coming for them, the real enemy becomes that they're going to be dehydrated. They're, 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 they're basically at the end of their rope, they have nothing and they find this ancient city in the middle of the desert. And they get to this ancient city in the middle of the desert. They find this well that's almost dry. They get some drops coming out and they're able to sustain themselves. At the same time, there's this battalion of German soldiers that are looking for the same location. If you haven't seen the movie, you're about to. They're looking for the same location and they, they finally find their way to this location. They send some scouts and they see that there's a well there and at the same time they really need the water as well but there's this rift, there's this battle between enemies that's keeping them from being able to experience this water, to have this water. And eventually as time goes on and there's a battle here and there that take place, there's a a large battle that takes place and several of the soldiers on either side are killed. And eventually what happens, and this is just a a perfect image that's burned into my memory and I hope that you can experience the same. Certainly this is one of the most powerful things when we look at it spiritually speaking is they're sitting there in this ancient city getting ready for battle. These these allied troops are, are down and they're decimated and all of a sudden coming over the hills, this entire battalion of German soldiers with their arms raised up. They surrendered. And they're coming over the hill and they don't realize that they are way outnumbering the rest. They don't realize that the, at that point that, you know, that there's a battle going on, that there's a, a greater war going on all around the world. But all they need, all they recognize is they need that water. And the one thing that was keeping them from getting to the water was their enemy. And as I look specifically at that in a, in a spiritual context, I can't help but realize that sometimes what happens in life is our enemy, or maybe even us, we lose the opportunity to experience this real and lasting water. You know, God refers to himself, Jesus refers to himself as the living water. And what happens from time to time in life is people don't get to experience this living water because of the fact that we are holding on to our arms. We're holding true to our position. We're making sure that that enemy doesn't take any new ground or doesn't get to experience anything. And all the while, what we're doing is we're keeping both sides, ourselves and the others included, from being able to experience what Jesus really has for us. And so here's my 
Here's my call and here's my challenge for us this morning as the Spirit's put it on my heart. And I, I love the way that he works as, as we've kind of put this service, to, this, this series together over the course of the last several months as we're leading into this. I can't help but think about the reality that as we move towards Easter that there's sometimes there's a, a softening of hearts, but sometimes there's even, for some there's a, a hardening of hearts, this desire to, to kind of keep it in. Well, if you would have, if you would have really tried harder, if you'd have had a better church attendance, maybe you'd be more accepted. No, this is a time for us to open our arms as a church, open our arms as God's family and say, hey, all are welcome to experience the living water that we have experienced as well. And so I'm going to ask you to stand as we close the service. And here's the response. This is not going to be a long drawn out uh, time of, of response and not a long drawn out uh, altar call. But here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you have someone now in your life, maybe someone you're thinking of, maybe somebody that came to mind, not necessarily even an enemy, but somebody who came to mind where you thought, you know what, I am living in disunity with this person or this person does have it out for me or I have it out for them. Maybe it's somebody you had a huge disagreement with at, at work or maybe somebody even at home. You know, we got Easter coming up. You're going to probably get together with some family. Maybe Maybe there's somebody that you just really have been button heads with since you were a child. Whatever that looks like for you, the person that came to mind. I'm going to encourage you to do this. And I know it might be a little bit scary. It might be something you don't want to do. And you don't have to come and kneel. But if you want to come to the front, just a moment. I'm going to just open it up. If you want to come to the front with arms open, with arms up, with, with arms out, just to say, God, I'm letting go of my of, of my weapon. I'm letting go of the things that I'm holding against my enemy. I'm letting go of, the, of the, the strongholds I've had and I'm opening myself to you. I'm giving up so I can give myself to you. And you ask, why do we have to come up front? I'm not saying that you have to. You can do that where you sit, but if you come up front, what that does, it brings forth an opportunity for the church to pray for you as well. And certainly no one's going to judge you. No one's going to get you to say, I can't believe it. I thought you had it all together. But instead they say, look, I, I want to lift up my brother and sister in Christ. And so as you come forward, you come before your church, but you also come before God to say, God, I'm being obedient to you. I'm taking the first literal steps to honoring your call in my life. And so we're going to take a moment. We're just going to take a, a, a moment or two for you to come and respond, to come forward. You can stand up here around the front. If you want to kneel, you can. But just, I would encourage you to come with arms wide open to say, God, I am yours. I give up my arms. I want to experience and I want others to experience your living water through me. Take me. Mold me. Use me. If that's you now, I want to encourage you to come forward as we sing. Just come on forward. Arms open arms wide, ready to receive him. Let's sing. You respond as you feel like. Thank you again for spending time with us today. Thank you especially to those of you who give to CCWC. It is through your faithfulness that makes this ministry possible. Also, if you have any questions about today's teaching or if you want to learn more about CCWC, feel free to contact our office, check the web, or follow us on our social media platforms. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we do encourage you to take a moment to subscribe and share it with friends. Let this be a blessing to someone else that you love in your life. You're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning for worship, or until then, we'll catch you on the next one. God bless.